0: This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine.
1: Hi, this is Richard Ingebretson from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Thank you for listening to our AWLS podcast, and remember you can log on to www.wildmedu.org and learn about our program and ways you can study and certify in wilderness medicine. We have an extremely uh, special uh, guest with us today, uh, a lady who did something uh, very remarkable. Uh, She climbed, uh, has climbed many mountains, but she climbed the world's seven summits, the highest mountain on each continent, and then the additional two uh, mountains that uh, are controversial when people say they are the highest mountain, so she climbed all nine of those But what was even more remarkable is that she climbed everything from Mount Everest, uh, Kilimanjaro, all of these great mountains when she was in her 60s. And she continues to climb now, even though she's now in her 70s. I think the first question that uh, our listeners will want to know is, uh, when did you start climbing, uh, number one? How did it start? How is it that uh, in your 60s you decided to climb these amazing mountains, uh, all nine of them, and uh, how you continue to climb now that you're in your 70s. That's just an amazing story.
0: Okay, well, I'll try to answer all of that, Uh, Rich. I did not come into high-altitude mountaineering from a place of strength and joy. I came into it when my life fell apart when I was 50, um, from a place of pain, depression, anger, frustration, Uh, I thought I had my life, I was a late bloomer. I thought I had my life in order when I was in my late 40s. I was teaching and doing research at University of Utah, felt like a dream job. I was involved in a long-term relationship with a man that I loved and I thought loved me. Then I lost it all. I was a mess. I couldn't sleep. My gut hurt all the time. I thought I was seriously ill, so I consulted physicians. All the tests came back negative. One physician cocked his head and said, Carol, are you under any kind of stress? Well, yeah, duh. I'd had two major life losses in within 18 months. And uh, I thought, oh, stress. Okay, I've got to learn how to manage stress. You know, I've always been interested in this high-altitude mountaineering stuff. Maybe this is the time to try that. I've got time on my hands because I don't have a job. I've got a little bit of money, not a lot, from my mother's estate. She's in a place she can't worry about me. I'm gonna find a guide company that'll take me to the Andes and learn rope skills and how to be a responsible rope team member. And And you know what? I was pretty darn good at it. And I loved it. I felt centered, I felt strong. It gave me a new focus, a new identity. So that's how I got started. When I was almost 51, one climb led to another. At age 61, I found myself attempting Everest. And by golly, I was an unlikely ever summiter, afraid of heights, timid, anxious, but I summited. And uh, when I came back from that trip at the Salt Lake Airport, there were a crowd of people welcoming me back, vaguely familiar looking guy who turned out to be a local reporter uh, for Channel 4 here in Utah. Last question he asked me is, well, you don't look like you're about to retire, though you're about that age, what's next? Well, I didn't know what was next other than putting some weight on my behind. I'd lost so much muscle mass from that climb so I could sit in my office chair and fluff up my financial reserves, but I mumbled something about the seven summits more to just have an answer to his question than real commitment. But you know, as I limped around the Wasatch and recovered from the rigors of my Everest climb, I wanted to climb again, and I thought, why not? I've got three of the seven summits already done. I've got the one that most people think of as the hardest. Why don't I finish the others? And so that's what led to it.
1: That's an amazing story, Carol. Listen, I uh, I think uh, we want to know, uh, a lot of our listeners don't know what those seven, seven summits are, and that there's two of those that are somewhat controversial. So why don't you tell us the names of those?
0: Okay, glad to do that, Rich. Uh, the seven summits are technically the highest point in each continent, and we have seven continents. So North America is Denali up in Alaska. South America is Aconcagua in Argentina. Africa is Kilimanjaro. Antarctica is Vincent Massif. Then we've got Europe. Most people consider Mount Elbrus to be the highest point in Europe, but it's in Russia, and some people don't regard Russia as part of Europe. So there's an argument you need to do Mont Blanc, the highest peak in the Alps. The highest peak in Australia, a very worn-down continent, is lower than most of our foothills here in the Wasatch. So there's an argument that you need to do Karsten's Pyramid, a limestone shark fin over 16,000 feet in Papua Province of Indonesia. Papua Province is the western half of the island that some people call New Guinea, but New Guinea is the eastern part. And then, of course, there's Mount Everest, the highest point in Asia. So that brings us to nine of the seven summits.
1: Incredible stories uh, have been accumulated by climbing those seven plus two uh, nine summits. Uh, And those stories are so uh, in, in numerous to tell, you probably can not can spend hours talking but why don't you tell us some of the more amazing stories and some of the things that happened to you while you summited these incredible peaks and again for people listening, this was in her 60s uh, and almost getting up into the 70s when she summited these, so it's just an amazing story
0: Well probably the most uh, extreme medical experience I had was on summit day climbing mount everest i got to the summit happiest day of my life glorious deeply spiritual experience but during my descent i went from heaven to hell by the time i reached the south summit about two and a half hours into my descent i realized i could not see a thing i was totally blind it started as annular vision you know the opposite of tunnel vision i could see in a donut of peripheral vision for a while, but not the center part of my vision, but the donut got skinnier and skinnier until I could see nothing. My vision was like a perfectly white, brilliant white piece of paper without any flaws or any edges. I was terrible as a blind person. I fell with nearly every step. Every time I fell, I just wanted to give up. I was getting more and more hurt. At one point, I separated my right shoulder, so I couldn't use my right arm or hand or shoulder. Um... But what kept me going is um, Eric Weinmayer had become the first blind person to summit Everest and survive the descent in 2001. This was seven years later. I wasn't allowed to give up. So every time I fell and wanted to give up, I would force myself to get my feet below my head. Sometimes I fell head down and find, grope around, find places for my feet, get my weight over my feet, stand up, try to find a new step, fight for it, fight, ow, fell again. Bad words, bad words repeat, repeat. I felt like I was an infinite loop of hell. But eventually I got down to our highest camp. Before the sun set, I began to make out shapes, and I wept with joy for the second time that day because I realized I was not permanently blind. I didn't know what had happened to me, whether I had some sort of weird stroke or uh, detached my retinas. For all I knew, I was going to be blind for the rest of my life, but I realized my sight was coming back, and by the next morning, I would say my vision was about 85 to 90% A-OK. So I was, had a fighting chance of getting down the treacherous Lhotse face and through the Kumbu Icefall without killing myself and other people because of blindness. Now, what caused the blindness? We're not sure. It wasn't the usual suspects. It wasn't uh, snow blindness. It wasn't detached retinas. It wasn't frozen corneas. I consulted with a, a high-altitude vision expert, Jeff Tabin, He examined my eyes for over four hours, said in his consultation room, young lady, I love it when a man 15 years younger than me calls me young lady, I can't see a single thing wrong with your eyes other than the usual age-related things. Do you ever have migraine headaches? And I said, no, doctor, I never have the pain, but I do occasionally have visual disturbances. And he snapped his fingers and he said, that's it. You had an extreme aura-like experience. So that's what we think it was, but because we don't really know, I have made a decision not to climb any more 8,000-meter peaks, so I've been invited several times to do that.
1: That is uh, an incredible story, Carol, about your blindness and your fortitude to get down. Uh, Just amazing. Um, What other things uh, happened uh, on these incredible heights of yours?
0: Well... People often ask, which is the hardest mountain I've ever climbed? And Everest was certainly very hard. But Denali in Alaska was hard in different ways. I'm not a very large person. I weigh about 130 pounds. And unlike on Mount Everest, where you have lots of help with pack animals and porters and moving your your materiel up the mountain, uh, on Denali, each climber is responsible to move all the material that they need for three and a half weeks on the mountain and that can amount, in my case, to more than I weigh, the combined weight of what I'm hauling in my sled and carrying on my back, at least the first day of the climb on western buttress. So that was really tough on my body and uh, both times I was on Denali I came back injured. In 2009, after a failed attempt because of storms, we didn't even get to try for the summit, got to the highest camp. Coming down, the route was so slippery, the guide behind me, who was in charge of controlling the loaded sled between me and her, could not control the sled. I got knocked down at least two dozen times and wound up with zero-degree tears in my left quad. So that required being in a full-leg boot, non-weight-bearing situation for at least six weeks, and then several months to rehab that leg, to rebuild the muscle mass, the flexibility, the proprioception, the balance, so that I could climb the next season, and in that season, I did summit, but a careless teammate let rope gather at my feet when we were descending the head wall, caused me to tr- trip and fall, and I badly damaged my right knee. So again, in a full-leg boot on my other leg and you know having to uh, rehab that leg so that I could climb Mount Elbrus in 2011. So different mountains have different hazards, Now, uh, another uh, problem that happened not to me, but a member of the expedition that I was a part of when we climbed Karsten's Pyramid in Papua Province, Indonesia, the so-called 8th of the Seven Summits, one of my teammates, the only other woman, fell off one of the native stick bridges, took a direct 20-foot fall, landed on her head on a boulder in the Swift River. We thought we'd lost her. I just went stone cold and froze. I, we, we thought she'd been killed. But we managed to find her, rescue her, uh, stabilize her, and get her to a, a dirt airstrip where she could be flown from Tamika to Jakarta to receive further uh, treatment and assessment of her injuries. I believe she made a full recovery, but that nearly ended that expedition. It really shook us all up. We. Uh, conferred among ourselves and went from 12 client climbers and 5 guides to 4 guides and 5 client climbers, whether we should even continue. We all voted to continue, but the agreement was if anything else happened, the expedition was over. We could not split the group again. So uh, we managed uh, to get all of nine of us, it was me and eight guys from uh, four or five different countries, several different languages. We all summited. And we managed to escape being kidnapped and held for ransom on our way out, which happened to three, four friends of mine three weeks later after we left that part of the world. So that was kind of a hair-raising trip. And, um, you know, head injuries, as you all know, are very serious and have to be managed properly.
1: Carol, these are uh, incredible stories, and mostly out of the um, context of people uh, in general don't experience these. Did you yourself experienced some of the more common problems like altitude illness or frostbite or hyper or hypothermia when you were on these uh, hikes?
0: You know, uh, Rich, I was pretty lucky. I I sustained no cold injuries. Um, I have never had pulmonary edema, to the best of my knowledge, or cerebral edema. Um, Probably the closest thing I had to any of those sorts of things is I did get pretty substantially hypothermic. I didn't wear enough layers when we were at about 22,000, 23,000 feet. And I remember everything getting stiff. It was hard to use my hands. My face wouldn't work very well. And uh, my affect got sort of flat. I went inward. I was hypothermic. And so I learned a valuable lesson that uh, you need to wear enough layers. See, here in the Wasatch, most of us can just work a little harder if we get cold, move a little faster, ski a little more aggressively, climb a little steeper. But over 20,000 feet elevation, that's just not an option.
1: I have a, a question for you. Um, have you ever uh, had the simple uh, uh, problems with altitude illnesses illnesses like nausea, Or uh, headaches? Do you ever get just the simple things?
0: Sure, Rich. Um, It's pretty typical for me when I'm moving up, say, above 15,000 feet to get a mild headache, to feel kind of lethargic, maybe even a little bit irritable. Um, Now, I have to go back a little bit. 1972, I climbed high on Mount Kilimanjaro when I was 25, I think, and I had moderate altitude sickness. That was a very different beast. Tunnel vision, irritability, social isolation, general malaise, feeling a bit sick to my stomach, no energy, feels very different from what I've experienced actually, ironically, as an older person. Just you know, mild headaches, a bit of fatigue, but usually within 24 hours, uh, the headache is gone, the fatigue is much less, and I'm ready to go on.
1: Uh, another question that I think that I'm interested in is how. Uh, what do you eat uh, when you're climbing uh, that high? What, how do you sustain your energy? What do you put into your body? And, and how do you get water at those elevations?
0: <laughs> really good questions, Rich, because I learned kind of in the School of Hard Knocks, what works for me here in the Wasatch doesn't necessarily work above 19,000 feet. I like gorp, you know mixture of nuts, um, semi-sweet chocolate, maybe some dried fruit like raisins. But above 19,000 feet, that stuff just makes me gag. The the granular nature of it catches in my throat and I can lose all my calories in a split second. So I have to switch to something like gummy bears or um, honey stingers or God forbid, goo, you know, those sports gels you squeeze into your mouth like... uh, frosting that are really disgusting, but sometimes that's about the only thing one can eat. At 26,000, all I could eat was like ramen noodles, kind of soupy things with carbohydrate in them. Fats and proteins just didn't work for my gut, which is true for most people. Just simple and complex carbohydrates and lots and lots of fluids, electrolytes, is about all you can take on. The day that I summited Everest, I consumed less than a liter of water and half of a goo packet in nineteen hours. I don't recommend that. That's just how things worked out.
1: Well, and why did why was that that it didn't work out? You you just didn't feel like eating up there.
0: Well, at times I felt like I my body was digesting itself from the inside, but I had no appetite. I was afraid if I ate anything, I would throw up. Um, but more important, everything froze. My water froze, uh, even though I had things inside my down parka, I had insulated jackets inside my pack, all the candy I brought froze solid, I couldn't get the wrappers off, I couldn't bite through the ice, and like I said, I was afraid to eat anything because I was afraid I'd throw up all over the inside of my regulator, and that would not be a good thing.
1: And uh, how many calories do you, when you're a little bit lower and you're not so nauseated, how many calories or uh, grams of sugar are you trying to eat?
0: you mean living here in the Wasatch? No, uh, when you're hiking. Oh, uh, when I'm hiking up high. I usually come back a few pounds lighter because I simply can't eat enough to meet my caloric uh, requirements when I'm climbing high and carrying a heavy load and in the cold and, you know, climbing hour after hour after hour.
1: That's, uh, that's very interesting. And you um, so you have to pick something that's lightweight, that has a, a lot of calories in it. How do you pick your shoes and boots and things? Is there, is it just trial and error, or did you get recommendations?
0: In the early years, it was trial and error. Some of the first mountaineering boots I had were extremely painful, did not fit me well. And I kind of learned in the school of hard knocks how important it is to ha- go with a boot that fits you. I can't recommend a brand because different brands work for different people. I have a duck foot, which means I have a narrow heel and a wide forefoot, so I have a difficult foot to, to fit. But I've found various boots over the years that work better for me than others. The problem is, they change over the years. You know, I'll find a dream boot and then five years later, that boot is either not made anymore or it's made in China on a different last and so it doesn't fit my foot. So it does take a lot of trial and error and experimentation.
1: Well, Carol, it's, uh, it's such an amazing thing, and the vast majority of people that are going to listen to this podcast are not going to climb any of those mountains. Uh, uh, the highest ones, certainly not Everest, or these, uh, these tall ones. Uh, what advice do you have for uh, people just who want to get out and climb and hike?
0: Well, Rich, I guess I would say, um, you know, I came into mountaineering not from a strong place, but sometimes crisis is an opportunity for growth. We, When one door closes, we are invited to look for other doors to open and have the courage to step through and try some new things. So as a younger person, I tried many things. I tried raising and training horses and showing them. I tried scuba diving because I was dating a guy who scuba dove. Um, I experimented with climbing high mountains and didn't think I liked it the first time that I did it. But I came back to it. So mountains have saved my life. You know, my life fell apart at 50, and I feel as I've completely rebuilt a new, exciting life for myself. New doors keep opening. I never thought I would write books. I'm now an author of two well-received books about life lessons I've learned climbing mountains around the world. Um, Never thought I was a particularly strong public speaker. Now I'm a sought-after public speaker. Uh, I feel that I belong to a tribe, of worldwide tribe of people who love mountains. I have friends all over the world. Um, I just say, you know, the magic keeps happening. The adventures keep happening. Next month, this is September. In October, I'm going back to Nepal for the sixth time to climb a peak called Mera Peak. It's about 21,000 plus feet high. Not particularly difficult technically, but it is a glaciated peak. It is up there near the limits of perhaps I can be at age 76. And I'm really excited to see Nepal again, and I plan to treat this as my last climb, my last big mountaineering climb, and I'm going to just enjoy and treasure every joyful, horrible, frightening, enchanting, inspiring, humbling moment of it. And you know what? I've been telling myself that for the last 15 years. This is going to be my last mountain, and then I want to climb another one. What can I say?
1: There's not much more that you can uh, say uh, than that. There is uh, uh, nothing really that I can say uh, after listening to those uh, inspirational, incredible uh, stories. Uh, We are going to invite you to come back after... Uh, This uh, last climb of yours, which I have a suspicion is going to be the next to last uh, climb that you do, Uh, you mentioned two books that you wrote. What are the names of those?
0: My first book is called No Magic Helicopter, An Aging Amazon's Climb of Everest. It came out uh, in early 2011. The second book is called Brightest of Silver Linings, One Woman's Climb, of Karsten's Pyramid in Papua Province, Indonesia, at age 65. And where can they get those? I think you can sometimes get them on Amazon. I don't pay their distribution fee, so they kind of come and go. But you can also get them directly from me, Carol Master. I have a website, which is just my first name, C-A-R-O-L, last name, M-A-S-H-E-T-E-R, together.com. If you go to my website, you can find my email address, which is really easy. Carol, underline master at hotmail.com. Contact me and um, I can mail you a copy.
1: I want to thank you again for uh, taking this time and talking about some of the experience you've had uh, climbing the tallest mountains in the world, certainly the most prominent mountains in the world, including the highest mountain in the world, Mount Everest. And uh, we wish you the very best uh, on your future climbs and and we know that they're going to go on for a long time and we welcome you back this ends the podcast on these incredible climbs with carol master and again thank you for listening